Let's turn to Jeremiah 33, please. Last week we began a study of this chapter, looking at the first 16 verses. As we're coming near the end of uh, four very important chapters that are placed within the context of Jeremiah's life and prophecy. At a time when things have become very dark for Israel, uh, chapters 30 through 33 become really a, a, a section of, of hope. It is, it is a section of consolation. And uh, comfort to bring light to God's desire to bless His people in spite of what they've gone through and in spite of what they've done. And though God has to take them into some kind of punishment or as we like to see it as, as this uh, chastisement, as uh, discipline that God is bringing upon His people who have disobeyed Him, the whole desire from God's heart and from His perspective is that they would return humble and ready to serve the Lord and receive the blessings that God wants to give. As we get to the middle of this particular section, I'd like to begin reading verse 14, and I know that we studied these last week, but we're going to begin at verse 14 for contents or context's sake. Here is a tremendous passage, a passage where, where God is speaking and, and saying, Behold, the days are coming. And saying them no longer really in the context of judgment, as it were, but in the context of blessing. And the Lord says, Behold, the days are coming, saith the Lord, that I will perform that good thing. I like that phrase, that good thing. which I have promised to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause to grow up to David a branch of righteousness. He shall execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In those days, Judah will be saved. And Jerusalem will dwell safely. And this is the name by which she will be called. The Lord, our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. Nor shall the priests, the Levites, lack a man to offer burnt offerings before me, to kindle grain offerings, and to sacrifice continually. Now I'm sure that you're all familiar with the proverbial phrase, the light at the end of the tunnel. Or maybe you've heard another phrase, it's always darkest before the dawn. And both of these sayings very simply say that while there may be a time of considerable darkness, a time of confusion, and a time even of pain, that something good is going to come out of it all. There's something yet that is good that is going to happen. And although thousands of years would have to pass for the people of Israel, the Lord God who created them, loved them, and named them His own was ultimately going to bless them beyond what they had ever experienced. And as we saw in our last study, at the onset of this chapter, the Lord reassured Jeremiah that He was with him at the very moment 
at that very moment and would continue to be with him and those who would call upon his name with hope and with faith. God would show them inaccessible knowledge concerning the future of Israel. Verse 3, Call unto me and I will answer you and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. God would show them these inaccessible things, the inaccessible knowledge concerning Israel, and that founded on His covenant name, the name of Yeshua, or I should say of, of Yahweh, Y-H-W-H, a name that isn't pronounced by the Jews. We've come to think of it as Yahweh, and some people call, it, call His name Jehovah. It's Lord, capital L-O-R-D, all capitalized in your Bibles. One thing that they do say, uh, that the Jews say, is, is Hashem. Hashem is, is, just means the name. It's so holy, they won't pronounce the name, but they will call him Hashem. But that's his covenant name. And you'll see the importance of his covenant as, as we go on, because the blessing, as we were speaking of last week, the blessing that outweighs every judgment is the coming of the Messiah from the seed of David just as God had promised would happen. And of course, this is ultimately looking ahead towards the kingdom age when Israel as a nation will, will know Jesus as their Messiah. We know that they don't know Him like that yet as a people. But we do pray, you know, we ask God, you know, bring that wisdom and understanding to the people of Israel who are still so blinded by their confusion in, in, in what God's Word says. And you know how clear it is when God opens our eyes for us to see that every prophecy that speaks of the coming of Messiah all point to Jesus Christ. How Jesus is that object of, of, of faith and of, of hope. And as the Lord our righteousness, Yahweh Sidkenu, as Jeremiah 23, verse 6, as we'll see it later. You'd have to turn there now, but we'll go there later. As we saw it back in Jeremiah 23, verse 6. When God was chastising the, the shepherds of Israel for not leading the people to God and leading the people to His truth. Yet, nonetheless, even back in chapter 23, He tells them these very same things that we're seeing here. Of the coming of that branch of righteousness from the house or line of David, to sit on the throne of David in Jerusalem. As righteousness fills this land, Jerusalem will itself take on that characteristic of righteousness. I want to repeat that a few times because it's something that we need to understand. That, that when the Lord who is our righteousness, Jesus Christ, is put on as our righteousness, then we will be reflecting that righteousness. The same goes for the city of, of Jerusalem. Because we saw last week in this passage that Jerusalem is called that name. And we just read it. It will be called Jehovah Sidkenu or Yahweh Sidkenu, the Lord our righteousness. Because it will take on itself the characteristics of that righteousness of the Messiah. Now we know that, the, that that certainly didn't happen when the exiles returned to rebuild their temple and their city. didn't happen in that near fulfillment. There was some fulfillment because they did come back into the land. But what we're seeing here in that the city was going to be called the Lord our righteous, that didn't happen. So the promises for the latter days. 
And then when people call Jerusalem the holy city, the name will be appropriate. When Jesus is ruling from the very throne in the temple of Jerusalem, when he comes, then it will be appropriate to call it the Lord our righteousness. Now we know that that certainly didn't happen then, but it will happen soon. Now let me interject here that the world has in all of its history sought out the ideal leader. Even to this day, people are seeking an ideal leader for nations, if not for global society, which seems to make it prime for, uh, for the Antichrist to come at any given time. The world is seeking out this ideal leader, even within the pages of Scripture. And amongst the children of Israel, there has been this, this search for the ideal king. Now remember that the Jews had God as their king. But there came a time during the seasons of the judges, and even right after that, when Samuel came into prominence as a, as a prophet and as a priest. We read in 1 Samuel 8, verses 4 and 5, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Look, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. They were seeking a king. The sons of, of Samuel were appointed to be judges, but they, uh, they were corrupt. So the people said, we don't want to corrupt judges, we want a king. Just like all the other nations. A few verses later in verse 18 of chapter 8 of 1 Samuel, this is the response. And you will cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, and the Lord will not hear you in that day. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but we will have a king over us, and that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And Samuel heard all the words of the people, and he repeated them in the hearing of the Lord. So the Lord said to Samuel, Heed their voice and make them a king. Samuel said to the men of Israel, every man go to his city. So there was that desire in the people's lives, in their hearts, to, to have their own king. It wasn't a good desire, because God was their king. But they were already being disobedient. And if the leadership, like the sons of Samuel, weren't responding with righteous leadership and all, people said, we just want a king. Let us have a king. But you see, only the Lord God has promised to give the world an ideal king. Man can't come up with that idea. Man can't vote anybody in. Man can't find, through all kinds of, of means, some one person or some one uh, leader that will bring in what is necessary for all the world to be at peace. Only God has promised that. He has promised the ideal King, the coming Messiah of Israel, the Lord Jesus Christ who will return and set up God's millennial kingdom on earth. Now, let me give you a list of some things, and we're going to add some things as we go, but, but God's ideal king will do these things. God's ideal king will first and foremost fulfill God's promises to his people. God's ideal king will fulfill God's promises to his people. Now we find that in verse 14. 
to restore his people to the promised land as one united Israel. Judah and Israel together again as one. God's ideal king will also be the righteous branch from David's line, which is verse 15. Again, we've kind of looked at this before. A descendant of David, but a different kind of descendant. Uh, Instead of the frail, weak, and sinful rulers who succeeded David, this ideal king will be righteous. Bring justice and righteousness to the land. This ideal king will teach others to do what is just and what is right. And in that day there will be no lawlessness and there won't be any injustice and there won't be any violence and there won't be immorality in society. Why? Because the righteous branch of David has come to fulfill righteousness as a descendant of David. Thirdly, he will save and secure his people. And this is what we see in verse 16. The ideal king will save and secure his people because justice and righteousness will rule the land, the people will be safe from the threat of enemies and will no longer live in fear. Think for just a moment of our own land. Think for just a moment of our own country. The problems that we're facing today. Because we don't have an ideal ruler, there is injustice and righteousness ruling in the land. The best that we can do is to try to follow the Constitution of the United States. The best that we can do is to try to be honest and open to the things that we have before us as as our rule for justice in an imperfect land. But it doesn't make the people safe from the threat of enemies. It is important for a nation such as ours to have people in government that trust in more than themselves and each other. It is important for the people who are governing to trust in God. When that does not happen, while this is an imperfect land, and we're not looking, you know, we're not saying that this, you know, we're looking for that, you know, heaven on earth. I mean, we know that heaven exists and we know that there is a perfect place led by a perfect ruler these are principles that 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 should guide every nation when god is in the center of a nation there is much more of a sense of safety than there is without it Just food for thought. And then fourthly, the ideal king will give Jerusalem his name. Yahweh Sidkenu, the Lord our righteousness. And again, reflecting Messiah's righteousness. As believers in Jesus Christ, we have that responsibility upon us. That if we have put on the righteousness of Christ then we are to reflect the characters or characteristics of Messiah. What are the characteristics of Messiah? There are a lot of them, aren't there? Go on and on all night thinking about all the characteristics. What simple characteristics can there be? But to reflect the love of Christ, the mercy of Christ, the grace of Christ, 
The forgiveness of Christ. The righteousness of Christ. The goodness of Christ. The kindness. The self-control. The fruit of the Spirit. So many things that we are called to reflect. When those things aren't being reflected, there's a problem, isn't there? If we put on the righteousness of Christ, then our lives are to reflect the righteousness of Christ. A nation will reflect the righteousness of Christ when they turn and believe as a nation. They're God. So this brings us to the last section of this chapter. That was just kind of bringing us together to tie it all together from the first part to the last. But this is the last section of this chapter which will give give us a, a number of other promises that the ideal king will fulfill. But let's read verse 17. It says, For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. Nor shall the priests, the Levites, lack a man to offer burnt offerings before me, to kindle grain offerings and to sacrifice continually. There shall never lack a man for David to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God made a covenant with David that from his seed an everlasting kingdom would come forth. Just so that you'll know where that is, it's 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12 and following, down through verse 16. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. There it is eternal kingdom I will be his father and he shall be my son if he commits iniquity now you have to understand of course Messiah is not one who will commit iniquity but the line has to begin with with David who is human who is a sinner and then on through Solomon and so on and so forth other sons and will bring other sons and other sons and so on and so forth well, they're still under this particular curse of, of being sinners. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, that was the promise of an everlasting kingdom. Now the descendants of David could have remained on the throne until Messiah came if they would have walked in the ways of God. That's the whole purpose of that particular statement. The problem came when they transgressed the laws of God. They refused to listen to the prophets. They refused to repent and get right with God. Which caused the Lord to bring judgment upon them. Now that was the only way that He could get their attention. And He did. Does God not get our attention whenever He has to put us in a position where we are convicted of things or we're put in a position where we need to realize it doesn't matter what anybody else knows, God knows it and He's confronted us with it. And we've got to do something about it. And God has done this with His people. And this is the reason why Zedekiah was the last king to sit on the throne of David. And his reign ended in 586 B.C. as the Babylonians came and and took him and the nation away captive to, to Babylon. No more king at this point. 
sitting on the throne of David. Why? Well, first of all, Jerusalem is destroyed. The people are taken into captivity. The king is taken as a vassal servant and, and, and eventually his eyes are taken out. What a shame that was. But did God break his promise that he would have someone on the throne of David forever? Did God break his promise? No, God doesn't break promises, does he? How we know this is one day Messiah will come again and he will set up his kingdom. Is Messiah from the line of David? Yes. We don't even have to go back and trace that. We know it. So God doesn't break promises. And when he sets up his kingdom, when he sets up the kingdom of David with Messiah on the throne, (laughs) that will be an everlasting kingdom. And this will indeed come to pass. So we are also told then, not only that David will sit, you know, David will sit on the throne, of course, through his seed, which is Christ. But then we're also told that the Levitical priests would resume functioning and would continue to do so forever. And some people struggle with that because they say, well, you know, once Jesus came and, and offered himself as a sacrifice for our sins once and for all, then what is the, what is the need then for priests? And why would there be again priests? And why would Ezekiel, and we're not quite there to Ezekiel yet, but once we get there we'll even learn more, but why would Ezekiel talk about a temple that's, that's built and then there will be priests there offering sacrifices? So the question comes, what, what, what is this about? Well, in the Millennial Kingdom, these priests would offer sacrifices of worship continually. Now notice that I said sacrifices of worship continually. This is what we do when we come here. We offer the sacrifices of praise continually unto God. That's what we are supposed to do as God's people. To constantly give praise and honor and glory, whether we sing, whether we live, whether we, whatever it is we do in our lives, it is to give glory to God. It is to give Him continual, continually a sacrifice of praise and of worship. Sometimes the confusion comes when we read that it says that they give a burnt, and, uh, a burnt offering and a, a meat offering. That meat, the word meat is really King James because the, the word itself literally means grain or meal offerings that will be primarily for worship rather than for the removal of, uh, or of the defilement of sin. They are not going to be offering sacrifices in other words for the devolvement of sin as they did before why because Jesus has already done that so this is what this is what we have to look at in other words instead of looking forward to the coming of the ultimate sacrifice which they had been doing in offering sacrifices now their worship will look back to that sacrifice on the cross the offerings themselves are offerings of representing worship rather than doing the sacrifice for the sake of, of uh, removing the defilement of sin. Now, turn to Hebrews, if you will, for just a moment, and, and we'll kind of leave it at this, because it just reminds us that it was that one sacrifice of Jesus Christ who really has become not only the sacrifice for our sins, but he was also the high priest who offered the sacrifice of himself 
for us. Hebrews 7 verses 23 through 28 says, Also there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. So folks, that's a very clear statement that is saying that the only way you can come to salvation, the only way you can come to that place of forgiveness of sins, to come to that place where you will have eternal life with God, is through Jesus Christ and the sacrifice that He gave on the cross. And He lives always to make intercession for us. Verse 26, For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer sacrifices or to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints as high priest men who have weakness, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the Son who has been perfected forever. And so suffice it to say, at least in this particular section, that there is a a revival of of the priesthood, but that priesthood is now offering not sacrifices for sin, but sacrifices of praise unto the one who died for our sins, Jesus Christ. The one who sits on the throne, in other words, the ultimate sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And by the way, the promise for the everlasting priesthood was made in Exodus chapter 40. Let me read that to you in Exodus 40 verses 12 through 15. It says, And you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the door of the tabernacle of meeting and wash them with water. Now remember that Aaron and his sons uh, would actually be the formation of, of the Levitical priesthood. He says, You shall put the holy garments on Aaron and anoint him and consecrate him that he may minister to me as priest. And you shall bring his sons and clothe them with tunics. You shall anoint them as you anointed their father, that they may minister to me as priests, for their anointing shall surely be an everlasting priesthood throughout their generations. So an everlasting priesthood doesn't have an end because it's everlasting. Now there's a specific statement made in Numbers chapter 25. It's an interesting thing. It's an interesting story when you read Numbers 25. Because here, the children of Israel were starting to worship the idols of, of Moab and, and, uh, and, and they began to uh, worship Baal and, and all. And they were so bold in their, in their worship of these gods that when Moses and, and, and Aaron and others were at the door of the tabernacle weeping because of this sin, that there was, a, there was one who took a woman into the very tabernacle itself. And at that point in time, there was one priest. His name was Phineas. And Phineas got up, disgusted with what they were doing, and he went in after them. And we're told that he took a spear. And evidently, there must have been in a position for him to just drive that spear through both the man and the woman. For going in to defile the tabernacle. In that particular case, in Numbers 25, verse 10, it says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, so it was Aaron's grandson, 
has turned back my wrath from the children of Israel because he was zealous with my zeal among them so that I did not consume the children of Israel in my zeal. Therefore say, Behold, I give to him my covenant of peace and it shall be to him and his descendants after him a covenant of an everlasting priesthood because he was zealous for his God and made atonement for the children of Israel. What a, what a story that is to add to this idea that uh, how close we are and how close some people are sometimes from, from death and separation from God to an everlasting priesthood. One step in one direction. And it took one priest to get up and say, I've had enough. And maybe for some of us, it may just take one, one person to get up and say, I'm, I'm, I've had enough with the way people are treating God and the way people are treating Christ. To stand up. It may happen. It could happen. It will happen. If we are zealous for God. If we have a zealousness for the things of God, the righteousness of Christ. And so even today we see the descendants of Levi or of Levi. Even today in Israel. Being trained in the law. So they can function in the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. They're going back and they're discovering who the Kohans are. The Kohanites being the, the priests. Because they're ready to build the temple in Israel. They're ready to start doing whatever is necessary to usher in the, the Messiah. What's going to be surprising for most of them is when they see who Messiah really is. They missed him 2,000 years ago. But he says, I'm still coming. And when you see me, you'll see the one whom you pierced. And you'll weep. Yet he comes to deliver them, to save them, to rescue them. So, in all of this, God's covenant was never broken. And so let's add two more things to our list of the ideal king and what he does. The ideal king will also fulfill God's covenant with David, which is verse 17. In other words, the promise of an eternal kingdom. And then also in verse 17, he will fulfill the covenant that God gave the priests in former generations. That they would stand eternally before God on behalf of the people. That's verse 18 as well. And so we come to verse 19. And the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, Thus says the Lord, If you can break my covenant with the day, and my covenant with the night, so that there will not be day and night in their season, then my covenant may also be broken with David my servant, so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne, and with the Levites, the priests, my ministers. As the host of heaven cannot be numbered, nor the sand of the sea measured, so will I multiply the descendants of David my servant and the Levites who minister to me. Now once again, the Lord used the faithfulness of His covenant at creation to foundationally strengthen the dependability of His promises 
and the infinite and, uh, and eternal quality of His people. Now, what do I mean by all of that? Well, again, he, he uses that faithfulness of His covenant. Go back to Genesis 8, verse 22. Because through all of time that we have been given on this earth, God has been faithful to this. In Genesis 8.22, God says, While the earth remains, sea time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. Can we say that that is true? Yes, we can. Other than a couple of uh, scriptural or biblical happenings that we call anomalies here, you know, the sun stopping and, you know, you know, going back a little bit. I mean, that was all in God's hand and God's time. It didn't keep the seasons from happening. It didn't keep the heat from coming in the winter, or in the summer, in the, the cold in the winter. It hasn't kept the light uh, shining in the daytime and the night having its darkness, except for the moon and the lights that God has given. And day and night have not really ceased. So they continue, right? That's God's faithfulness. That's God's faithfulness to, to His covenant. So now go to Jeremiah 31, and we studied this a few weeks ago. Jeremiah 31, verses 35 to 37. You remember this. This is a statement that God made. He said, Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for a light by day, the ordinances of the moon and the stars for, the, for a light by night, who disturbs the sea and its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is His name. Why does He say the Lord of hosts is His name? Because it, it is based upon His covenant. His name is the covenant. And directly attached to the covenant that He made. If those ordinances, He says, depart from me before, or depart from before me, says the Lord. The ordinance of the moon and the stars and the sun. If those ordinances depart from me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. Now, what did God just say? If the day doesn't happen, if the night stops, if, if, if these things, if, if the moon and the stars shine no longer, If all of creation has been upset, then Israel ceases as a nation. Well, those things haven't stopped, have they? Therefore, Israel will not cease as a nation. So I don't know where these replacement theology people get their, their information from, but if you just read the Bible, you realize God is faithful to His covenant. And if God is faithful to His covenant, then He's faithful to His people, and He's faithful to His land, and He's faithful to those that He called Israel. Simple. If we'll just let it be simple. God's simple truth. But here in chapter 33, the, Lord's add, the Lord adds something else to that very same thought. He will now multiply the people as the stars of heaven, which was one of the promises that God made to Abraham. In Genesis 15, he says after these things, in verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Then Abraham said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and he said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars 
if you are able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Phil Kegg used to sing a song 30 years ago. He said, look at the stars, Abraham. Look at the stars, Abraham. And know that I am. Look at the stars and know that I am. God says that there is only one way. There's only one way that this covenant can be broken. Where the Messiah won't come and sit on the throne of David. Only one way. If the, stu- if the sun stops shining, then the covenant will be broken. Well, folks, if that happens, then you might as well start believing in global warming or something like that, right? No, don't start believing in that. You know what? We're in for a deep freeze. That's what we're really in for. And life is over if the sun stops shining. But that's not going to happen. Also, if you can count the number of the stars in the heavens or the number of grains of the sands of the earth, then this covenant can be broken. It can be broken if we can count all the, all the grains of sand. Anybody ready to try? How about the stars? You ready to try to count all the stars? Because if you can count all the stars, guess what? God's covenant can be broken. Well, long before telescopes were invented, someone took the task of counting the stars and he came up with the numbers 6,019. Now, someone else, in double-checking this count, came up with 6,026. So the first guy missed it by seven, at least according to the second guy. The second guy missed it by seven according to the first guy. But they weren't even close. Today it's been estimated that there are over 10 to the 22nd power of stars in the universe. Does that mean there's 22nd zeros after the one? There's not even a name for that number, I don't think. And uh, with that in mind, there's probably over 10, point, uh, 10 to the 22nd power of grains of sand on the earth, too. But these are only estimates. Why? Because they can't be counted. They cannot be counted. And thus, what does that tell us? It tells us that God's covenant will not be broken. And so, in verse 23 of our text, it says, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Have you not considered what these people have spoken? Saying, The two families which the Lord has chosen, He has also cast them off. Thus they have despised my people, as if they should, be, they should no more be a nation before them. Thus says the Lord, If my covenant is not with day and night, And if I have not appointed the ordinances of heaven and earth, then I will cast away the descendants of Jacob and David my servants, so that I will not take any of his descendants to be rulers over the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For I will cause their captives to return and will have mercy on them. That last last sentence really is, is, is the separate 
from, from the first part. He was tying in in the first part, verses 25 and 26. If my covenant is not with the day and night, then I'll cast the descendants away. But then he says, for I will cause their captives to return and will have mercy on them. In other words, my covenant is still sure and is true. Now, there are considerable opinions as to who these people are that are mentioned in verse 24. It says, these people. Well, some believe that the passage is referring to the descendants of Judah and the Levites, because that's, you know, contextually, that's who he's been talking about. Others believe that it referred to the Judahites alone, the, 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 the children of Judah alone, while others say that it was doubting, uh, it was doubting Israelites uh, or Israel's heathen enemies. In other words, it was uh, the doubting Israelites that were doubting God's word or even he, uh, Israel's heathen enemies. Well, whoever it was, one thing is for sure. One of the great works of the Lord will be to vindicate his people before all those who mocked or persecuted them because of their faith. You're, you're seeing some of that take place even today. The mocking of faith, the mocking of God's people, the mocking of God, the mocking of Christ, the mocking of the cross, the mocking of the Bible, mocking all the things that, uh, that uh, pertain to, to God and, 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 and to his creation. And as it was in, 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 in Jeremiah's day, in our day, some deny that God will restore Israel. And some will deny that the ideal king will come, especially from God. In other words, we can get our own ideal leader. I talked about that earlier, you know. Man is always searching for that ideal leader. And some of them have used, uh, some of them have used uh, spiritual terminologies to say that, uh, you know, man can still find uh, the ideal king or the ideal leader. They'll use terms like Christ consciousness or, or the Christ uh, person or the Christ uh, thing. You know, so they use terms, but they, they don't believe in Jesus. But if you read Matthew 24, you realize that Jesus says, beware of, of false prophets. Beware of those who come saying, I am, I am the Christ. Now you can take that particular statement a couple of ways. You can take it as, as Jesus saying, beware of those who say that I am the Christ, but don't live for me or don't re- represent me. And there'll be false prophets because of what they do believe and what they do represent. Or you can also see it as Jesus saying, beware of those who come saying, that, saying I am the Christ, speaking of themselves. I've looked at uh, some TV programs and, and, and uh, news documentaries of, of, of people who actually call themselves the Christ, you know. There's some guy out of Puerto Rico, I think, and he calls himself Jesus or whatever. And, and he goes around, he's got a weird religion stuff, you know. So there are all kinds of things that are going on, you know. And then there, there are those, when Jesus says, uh, beware of those who say, I am the Christ... And they're pointing to someone else. And it's not Jesus. So uh, there are all kinds of things, you know, that people are doing to try to, to bring about their own ideal king. But they won't accept the fact that Jesus said, I'm coming again. They won't accept the fact that it's, it's the Jesus of the Bible. That it's the Jesus who died on a cross in 
in, outside of the gates of Jerusalem. The Jesus who, who is the son of the living God. The Jesus who came born of a virgin. The Jesus who came born as a Jew. They, they don't want to accept that truth. But God has assured his prophets that these unbelievers and mockers would be proven wrong. And especially Jeremiah, God is saying to him, listen, these, these are going to be proven wrong. For God has the power, you see, to establish the fixed laws of the universe and of the day and of the night. And as we've said, if these could fail, perhaps his promises might also fail. But the fixed laws will not fail because God has the power to hold the world in place as long as he wills. As long as God wills, he's going to hold everything in place. Until the day that all the things that we know to be the world and the, and the heavens will be destroyed. And then there will be a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem. A new place where righteousness will dwell. So therefore God will use his power to show his mercy and compassion. That's what the last sentence of verse 26 is dealing with. Let's look at it again. Verse 25, thus says the Lord, If my covenant is not with night and day, or day and night, and if I have not appointed the ordinances of heaven and earth, then I'll cast away the descendants of Jacob and David, my servant, so that I will not take any of his descendants to be rulers over the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That is, if my covenant with day and night and heaven and earth are broken. He says, For I will cause their captives to return and will have mercy on them. So Jesus Christ then is the promised Messiah, the righteous branch who was sent to establish God's justice and righteousness on earth. And Jesus Christ is our righteousness. I told you we would go to Jeremiah 23. Let's go there now, Jeremiah 23. And I want you to see how close this section is, this passage is to what we've just read earlier in Jeremiah, 20, uh, Jeremiah 33. But here in verse 5 it says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord. Jeremiah 23, verse 5. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and, and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved. And Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his name by which he will be called. The Lord, our righteousness. Well, consider, if you will then, the importance of Jesus being our righteousness. Knowing, first of all, that that is the truth. Knowing that the scripture tells us that Jesus Christ is our righteousness. First uh, Corinthians 1 verse 30. But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. These are the things that Christ has become for us. The wisdom of God, the righteousness of God, the sanctification of God, and God's redemption. We cannot be redeemed without the work of Jesus Christ. We cannot be redeemed without the blood of Jesus Christ shed for our forgiveness. We cannot be redeemed without the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. And yet, we are in Christ, who is our righteousness. And if we're in Christ, then we have put on the righteousness of Christ. 
And not only have we done it, but we have been called to remember to keep putting on the righteousness of Christ each and every day of our lives as believers. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For He made Him, God made God the Father made Him, Jesus His Son, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Now we are called to, to be the righteousness of God. But only because of Jesus, not because of what we've done. As a matter of fact, Paul tells uh, Titus in his letter to Titus, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He has saved us. According to God's mercy. When Christ came to earth, He walked perfectly before God the Father. By living a sinless life, He secured perfect righteousness. The ideal righteousness for us. So when we place our trust in Jesus Christ, God credits the righteousness of Christ to our account. Did we earn it? No. Did we merit it? No. Did we work real hard to get it? No. In fact, we were working real hard not to get it, even though we didn't know that. But he then credits the righteousness of Christ to us because we believe, just as Abraham believed in God for righteousness. And it was accounted unto him, it was put on his account. Has God put righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, on your account? The only way we can ever become acceptable to God is through the sacrifice and righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's the only way we can become acceptable to God. And don't let people fool you into thinking that it's the things that you do. If you do this, this, and this, and this, man, God, God, you know, you'll become acceptable to God. Remember this one statement. We studied it way long time ago in the book of Isaiah. Our righteousness. As a matter of fact, it's, 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 it's actually plural Our righteousnesses are as filthy rags before the Lord. Our righteousnesses are as filthy rags before God. So it's not what we do. It's not the works of righteousness. Now it doesn't mean that once we come to Christ we don't do anything. No, when we come to Christ we have such a love for God, such a desire to serve the Lord, such a desire to honor Him that we'll do good works. And that's why Paul says don't be weary in doing good works. Do the works because that is what is motivating you. The fact that you've come to Christ. You're not doing works to be accepted by Christ. You're doing works because Christ has already saved you. You're not doing works to come to Christ. You're doing works because you're coming from Christ out and being the extension of Christ. That's why if we reflect the righteousness of Christ, people will be blessed. Just remember, don't try to reflect your own righteousness because it's not going to be any good. But if we reflect the righteousness of Christ, what a beautiful thing that is in comparison to the righteousness of the world. 
And this is why in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, and I remember that uh, on, on our Sunday morning studies not long ago, I had talked about this particular statement about being, uh, you know, what the will of the Lord is. You know, we're talking about that in the book of Acts. And, 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 I, and I read Romans 12, I be, uh, verses 1 and 2, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service when dealing with worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And notice this, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. We become acceptable to God not by our sacrifice, but by the sacrifice and righteousness of Christ. So the acceptability factor is not about us. It's about Jesus in us and upon us. Have we put on the righteousness of Christ? You know, you know, when Paul deals with that statement in the, uh, I believe it's in Romans 13, when he when he makes that statement, he's he's using terminologies that 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 cause us to picture someone putting on a, a a piece of clothing, and he talks about putting on the righteousness of Christ. So it's like every day, you know, we're not going to go out the door without, you know, clothing. Hopefully not, Lord. We wouldn't do that, you know. know, Some people think that they can and they want the freedom to be able to do it, but that's not freedom to anybody else. (laughs) But the important thing is that when we're putting things on, when we're putting, you know, uh, I I, I sometimes tell, I wrote a little article for a police uh, uh, paper one time and I, and I talked about how, you know, the police officer going out the door is going to make sure that he's got his badge, he's got his gun, he's got his, you know, everything that he needs on his belt. You don't leave without that if you're a police officer. We, you know, we don't leave our homes without the righteousness of Christ. We can't leave without what we need for life every day. That is putting on Jesus Christ. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ each and every day of your lives. And so the importance then of understanding the righteousness of God upon a city, Jerusalem, which for many years did not reflect the righteousness of God and should have, but one day it will because God has not given up on his people nor on the land nor on the city, the city of David the city of peace, Yerushalayim, the city of God's shalom. Let's pray.